Hello, it's Thursday, October the 12th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio here on the Stanford University campus, Dr. Lonnie Chen. He's the Hoover Institution's David and Diane Steffi Research Fellow. He's Director of Domestic Policy Studies and Lecturer in Stanford's Public Policy Program and Lecturer in Law at Stanford Law School. Lonnie Chen served as a policy director to the Romney-Ryan 2012 presidential campaign and a senior advisor to Marco Rubio's 2016 presidential bid. His writings have appeared in a variety of outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. He's been a CNN political commentator and has provided political analysis and commentary on nearly every other major television network. That was a mouthful. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. I think when we dub this, we're going to put Johnny Cash's I've Been Everywhere Man in the background. Yeah, of that, it feels that you, way sometimes. Well, you have been everywhere. Congratulations. So let's start this conversation, Lonhe, with a riddle that hopefully you can answer to me. I look at the Republican Party, and here's what I see. I see Republicans in 2010 winning the most House seats since, I believe, 1938. I see Republicans in the 24 election gaining, I think, uh, total, uh, building up to 54 Senate seats, which I think is the most since about 1930, since before FDR. I look nationwide and I see 34 governors. I see Republicans control of 32 state legislatures total. Nationwide, Lonhe, 4,100 of 7,383 state lawmakers are Republican. That's the most since 1920 when this institution was all of one year old. Add to that the Republican presidential nominee winning the election last year, and these should be good times to be a Republican in the United States of America, yet, Lonhee, there seems to be something of an identity crisis going on. Please explain. Well, I think that's absolutely fair. I think that the electoral, first of all, the electoral success that Republicans have experienced, uh, you highlighted really how broad and how dramatic in many ways it's been, particularly at the state level, and that tends to be overlooked. But I think underlying this identity crisis is a fundamental set of fissures in the party uh, that are derived from fissures within the conservative movement. What does it right. mean to be a political conservative in the United States today? I don't know that that's really well defined. And part of it's because, you know, the Republican Party was the party in opposition uh, for eight years under Barack Obama. And during that period of time, it was easy to coalesce around things that Republicans opposed. Right. Turns out it's a lot harder to coalesce around things that Republicans are in favor of. And I think we're seeing the challenges that can arise now when a lot of that agenda for eight years was really ill-defined. And I think now, these next several years are really about the heart and the soul of the conservative movement in a lot of ways. It's about articulating what Republicans are for, what conservatives are for, and by the way, those two don't always sync up. Right. A couple of weeks ago, Lonnie, Donald Trump gets involved in a runoff election in, of all places, Alabama, big Trump state. And Donald Trump endorses the appointed incumbent, one Luther Strange. These are odd names we have in Alabama, yeah. Luther Strange. Uh, and he ends up on the odd side of, against a fellow named Judge Roy Moore, who runs pretty much as did Donald Trump in 2016. So in some regards, it was Trump versus Trumpism. And Trumpism prevailed. Yeah. Well, and, and Roy Moore ran with the support of, of course, Steve Bannon, Steve Bannon. Uh, and, and, uh, and Sebastian Gorka, a number of people from the, uh, from the Trump orbit. Yeah, that was a very puzzling election in a lot of ways because mm -hmm. it seemed like Donald Trump's um, name was behind Luther Strange, but his, but his soul wasn't right. behind Luther Strange. And I think, you know, again, here, here is the challenge. The challenge is you have a developing set of theories that one might consider uh, to be Trumpism. And those theories are 
at odds in some situations with what one might expect a traditional conservative to be for. Mm -hmm. And I think that challenge, which was at the heart of the Alabama race, is going to be uh, front and center in many electoral races uh, as we go into the midterm cycle in 2018 and beyond. Right. My next question. So Mr. Bannon, formerly of the Trump White House, formerly his chief strategist, now back in the Breitbart orbit and wanting to basically go to war with the Republican establishment, has said he's going to be very active in Senate races. Tennessee, Arizona, Nevada, he's going to try to get populist Republicans elected. John Podortz uh, wrote a very interesting column in the New York Post the other day saying that, in effect, Republicans need to stand up and try to stand down Mr. Bannon by taking on the challenge, not trying to trying to turn into the curve, if you were, but taking him head on. Did you? I don't know if you saw the column or not, but what, what do you think of that story? No, I, I, I agree with that notion because, again, the, the, the confrontation is here. Mm -hmm. The basic question about what it is that the conservative movement stands for. I mean, look, you know, Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, um, he's taken a lot of heat right. for supposedly being counter to the president's agenda. What I can't figure out about that claim is that I don't think there's any single person in Washington who's actually tried harder mm -hmm. to advance the president's agenda right. than Mitch McConnell. And so the notion that we're going to have this intra-party fight, that we're actually going to make it harder for incumbents who I think in many situations, and there are a few exceptions, but in many situations are doing their best to advance the president's agenda. Mm -hmm. The notion that we're gonna make it harder for them to win re-election seems to me to be completely untenable. I do think Republicans need to fundamentally make a decision about whether they're going to allow this to happen, or whether they're gonna stand up and say, you know, look, this kind of intra-party nonsense has no place here. Right. And, 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 you know, how they do that exactly is much more challenging, is much easier said than done. But I, but I do think the time has come for that. So if you're Mitch McConnell, you're Paul Ryan, if you're the people controlling the purse strings of Republican campaigns, Lonnie, how do you measure these individual races? Because in some cases, as we've seen, uh, allowing an insurgent to take the nomination has a tragic result. We can yeah. look at previous Senate elections oh, yeah. in places like Indiana and Missouri. On the other hand, I can point you to Florida in 2010, where an upstart named Marco Rubio sure. takes on Charlie Crist, the establishment choice, and Rubio prevails. We'd agree that overall that's a better thing for Republicans to have Rubio in that seat. Yeah, and, and I, you know, not to say that the candidate committees and the leadership have always made the right political decisions, right. but by and large, um, you know, I, I think we have to be smart about this, and I think we have, to, we have to be willing to identify problems where there are problems. You know, someone like, you know, you refer to the state of Missouri, Todd Aiken, right. um, and, and the, you know, the challenges he created in 2012 in a Senate seat that was potentially very winnable um, could have been avoided. It could have been avoided with some very easy identification of the problem. Now, um, it, again, it's not universally the case that the incumbent's always going to be the best political fit going forward. But I think it is the case that if you look at the current slate of incumbents that are running for re-election in 2018 for the U.S. Senate who are Republicans, mm -hmm. the vast majority of these individuals are fine U.S. Senators, and they are doing their best to support the president's agenda where it does not conflict with what conservatives traditionally have believed in. That's, I really believe that. So um, there's no easy formula here, mm -hmm. but I don't think that the answer is um, to, to say, look, we're not going to engage this fight. We're right. just going to let it play out however it goes. I, I don't think that's an option. 
Okay. So you divide your time between here, Stanford, and Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And when you're in D.C., you are working with Republican lawmakers and you're doing media. I'm not going to ask you for the media's view of Donald Trump. I think that's self-evident. <laughs> I think that's pretty obvious. But let's talk about the Republican lawmakers. Your sense, Lon Heath, from spending time on the Hill, do they respect Donald Trump? Do they fear Donald Trump? Do they want to work with Donald Trump? Do they think Donald Trump is going away in, in a couple of years? So why bother? What's what's the mindset? Is all of the above an answer? I mean, I sure. you know, I think to a certain degree, they, they've thought all of those things. Fundamentally, they very much thought when Donald Trump came into office that they had a huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. They were all sincerely and genuinely excited, notwithstanding all of the turmoil the party faced during the election last year. Right. I think they all felt like here was an opportunity to advance an agenda. I think they very quickly got concerned about what they perceived to be some of the uh, extracurricular activities, tweets of the president, fights that maybe you know he was best off not getting into. Um, and what became clear over time, I think, is that he, the president can be an unreliable ally. Mm-hmm. And that is very difficult for members of Congress who are trying to establish some kind of certainty in how they're processing a political and policy agenda. Right. So I, I think at this point, to say that they're completely hopeless is not true. I think they're still hopeful that they can have a good working relationship with the president. They can move forward on some agenda items like tax reform, which have been traditional Republican priorities. But they also kind of are are, are very much guarded uh, in their enthusiasm because they recognize that that things could change in an instant with the president. And you just never quite know where he's going to be any given day. So I think they're doing their best to work with him where they can. But they also recognize that there will be situations where they may run crosswise with them. Now, I think they're also concerned that when that happens, they don't want to be on the receiving end of a tweet. They don't want to be on the receiving end of a harsh set of comments. So um, it's a very delicate balance for these lawmakers right now. So what do you think possesses Ben Staffs to go on Twitter and challenge the president saying, have you decided not to uphold your your office? Yeah, I think think he's speaking his mind. (laughs) I Uh think he, he feels like... Um, he's he's somewhere where um, where he can do that. Now right. we're going to see if politically that's the right calculus or not. But I, I don't. To his credit, I don't think he's thinking about it from a from a purely what's going to be best for me in the next election vein. Right. He's probably thinking about you know how do I continue to build my brand in the conservative movement? How do I continue to establish what I believe in? Right. And he's doing that. And and so far, at least for him, I think it has differentiated him. Um, and, and in politics, differentiation, you know, can be a good thing sometimes. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering what social media would have done back in the 90s during the Clinton presidency oh. when Clinton, say, signed welfare or signed the Defense of Marriage Act in the dead of night, What, how congressmen would have tweeted that act. Yeah, I mean, the, the media culture and the, the rapidity of the news cycle mm-hmm. has really defined the, the Trump era. And in a lot of ways, Trump is the right president for the time because he's able to participate in that news cycle in a way that no previous president's been able to do. He's able to drive the news cycle, yeah. arguably, in a way that no president's been able to do before. So um, it, it would have been interesting, you know, all of the stuff that President Clinton went through, both the stuff that he signed, but also, you know, the, the tail end of his term and all of the stuff he dealt with personally. Um, hard to imagine what it would have been like if we'd had Twitter in 96. Exactly. So you do the Sunday talk shows a lot. So when you go on a Sunday talk show, are they looking for you to play a role? Are they looking for you to defend the Trump administration? Do they want you to be Republican criticizing Trump? How, 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 what, what are you expected to do on that show? You know, I, I have found that, um, first of all, a lot of this Sunday programming is very is actually very high quality um, mm-hmm. in the sense that uh, I've never been pre-programmed 
or asked to play a certain role. Now, they, they know that my perspective is going to be a little more nuanced because there are situations where um, I support the president and what he's trying to do. There are others where, where I fundamentally disagree. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you, you think about a guy like John Dickerson who hosts the uh, CBS show Face the Nation. Um, he came to that job after many, many years as a, as a very credible and, and good journalist. And I think he brings that approach to that show. I think um, uh, Chuck Todd brings that approach to his show. George Stephanopoulos and his team bring that to, to his show as well. So I, I've never been asked to represent, you know, the establishment Republican point of view. Mm-hmm. The reality is that's kind of the heritage I come out of in a lot of ways. And so that, that's, a you know, I, I, I tend to be quite sympathetic, for example, to Senator McConnell and the challenges he faces. Right. But, but I also... Um, I find it's a good forum just to speak your mind, which uh, which makes it actually pretty good TV. All right. In the world of consultancy, there are some very high-profile Republican consultants, a few from Mitt Romney's days, very vocally against his president. Steve Schmidt out here in California is an example of this. Not in the Romney world, but he was in the McCain world. Yeah. But been very vocal. Why are they doing this to a president of their own party? You know, I, I, I think part of it is that they are um, they're speaking their minds, too. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Steve Schmidt is somebody who, very skillful communicator, great experience in Republican politics. Um, you know, and I and Steve fundamentally, I think, still believes in um, in these basic conservative ideals, particularly around economic policy. But he has a personal view about Donald Trump, and that mm-hmm. personal view influences um, a lot of what he says. I, he's not alone in that regard. So I, I don't know that... Um, Again, I think there's a challenge in our media environment right now because everybody's looking to categorize people. Right. And, you know, it's easy, for example, if you see Steve Schmidt and Hugh Hewitt, perfect example, on MSNBC together, both contributors to that network. You want Steve to be the anti-Trump guy. You want Hugh to be the pro-Trump guy. It's not always that simple. And um, one of the challenges is that our media environment has created necessity around that conflict, around that heat. When, in fact, I think both of them might might be more nuanced in their views. So your friend, Tevi Troy, you've co-authored some articles yeah. with him on health care reform. He puts conservatives in three camps. There are the never-Trumps, the ever-Trumps, and then what he calls safe-space conservatives, who are not really wild about Trump, but they'll defend him if need be when he's attacked by the media, attacked by Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. You go along with that assessment? Yeah. No, first of all, I think Tevi is a, is a brilliant guy, and I've always enjoyed working with him. But, but, but I think his assessment's right. I think that... And and you see it, uh, you know, you just sort of go around and you ask 100 Republicans. I think that characterization is very is very fair. You'll find, I think, the smallest percentage are sort of the never Trump. They're always going to be opposed to Trump people. Right. And then the the next level up is probably the, the, the always Trump or the ever Trump, as Tevi puts it. And then I, I actually think most Republicans and most conservatives you talk to fall into the category of people who – um, you know, there's a lot of things he does that makes you shake your head or that you disagree with. So you're not going to be willing to go out there and defend him every single time he does something that right. you perceive to be crazy. On the other hand, you're also not going to viscerally come out and, and oppose everything he does either. Mm-hmm. So I tend to think that that last category is the largest, and maybe um, by self-association, I think it's the largest because that's the camp I happen to you're think I fall right? into. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, But I think Tevi's assessment has a lot of, has a lot of truth to it. So you said in some instances you're pro-Trump, in some places you find yourself anti-Trump, or are you pro-Trump? Well, first of all, I think he has done a a good job of articulating on tax reform what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, The details are always fuzzy, but, you know, having worked in the tax reform battles for many years, I can tell you that that the devil is always going to be in the details. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I think what he's done is he's raised uh, attention on the issue. He's talked about some goals that I think are very laudable. I do think our tax code needs to be modernized and renovated to improve growth. So I think those are all good things. Um, on health care, I fundamentally support the orientation in terms of, of doing away with many aspects of the Affordable Care Act. I think that's the right direction to move in. Um, certain things in the foreign policy space I've been supportive of. I think he took very aggressive action against Syria early on in his term, which was mm -hmm. a good thing. Um, I don't necessarily subscribe to the point of view that he's entirely reckless on North Korea. I think there might be some method to the madness there. Right. So, you know, on policy, again, we're not talking about style. On style, I'm, I'm still uncomfortable with a lot of the way this stuff happens. But substantively, I think there's a lot there that that actually puts him in line with with what other Republicans would do. Judicial appointments, another perfect right. example. I think Gorsuch was very good. I think many subsequent judicial appointments have been excellent. I have friends that are now appointed to the bench, and I think they're great people. and will be great judges that will preserve a traditionalist view uh, of uh, of legal interpretation. So I, um, there are a number of things he's done that I actually think are are, are quite good. So Speaker Ryan is in the news today saying that he might fiddle with Christmas vacation if need be to get tax. God forbid done. that Congress has to work over Christmas. Well, you look at the calendar, Lonnie, and I think there are about 80 days left in, yeah. in 2017, and Congress has all of something like 30 work days. So yeah. you're an observer of politics, and you're sitting on the outside watching this as a Republican, and you say, my God, how do they get into this box where they're trying to do something enormous, which is tax reform, and they've given themselves all of 80 days and 30 days to get this done? What happened? Well, there's, it, it gets even more complicated than that because, yes, they want to do tax reform, but remember that they have to fund the government right, before December 8th right. because the continuing resolution expires. They've got the debt ceiling to deal with again. Um, they've got a, a bunch of nominations. The Senate has a bunch of nominations to process. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, and they want to do tax reform. And, by the way, they might want to get it done. There might be reason to get it done before a certain Roy Moore – wins his election and gets seated as a United States senator because there's no telling whether he would be disruptive to that. I, I don't know whether he'll be disruptive, but there's some theory out there that, that he would be. So th there's a lot of things they're going to have to get done in a very short period of time. I think what they're banking on with tax reform is, first of all, the immense political pressure that exists on Republicans to get something done because mm -hmm. so far they don't have a signature legislative achievement, which I think will be an issue for Republicans going into the 2018 election cycle. Right. The second thing that they have going for them is that Republicans are just more comfortable talking about tax reform than they are about health care. I mean, the body language is different. The proficiency in speaking about the benefits of tax rate reductions compared to talking about regulatory relief in health care. I mean, the, the, the differences are obvious. And so right. I think those two factors would argue in favor of something happening, even with the compressed timeline. This is an interesting theory I heard uh, someone say recently, uh, talking about why the Republicans could not get Obamacare repeal through this year, um, that when you look at the Republicans, there are certain issues that just drive Republicans. And that's what? That's economic issues, tax issues, some social issues, foreign policy issues. Healthcare policy historically is not something that's floated the Republican boat. So it's just not something that drives the caucus, if you will. But hindsight's 2020, Lon He, do you think it was a mistake that they spent so much energy this year going after Obamacare repeal? Yeah, I, you know, I've struggled with this question because I was, I've been very supportive of the idea of starting with Obamacare repeal. So I, I, I still think it was the right move. And I think it was the right move because if you look even today at public opinion polling of Republicans around the country, 
There is no more important priority. In fact, there was a poll that Politico took with the School of Public Health at Harvard just a few weeks ago, and they found that, that Republican voters still overwhelmingly believe that the most important priority for Congress needs to be repeal and replacement of, of Obamacare. So I, I think politically it would have been very difficult on Republicans if they'd started somewhere else. Now, the flip side of that is maybe they would have actually gotten something done, and that, that would have covered up all, all, all the sins of having started with tax reform. Right. But I tend to think given the political impetus, given the fact that there was some urgency around some of the Obamacare marketplaces experiencing huge premium increases and declining choices, that it was going to be important for them to start there. Right. Um, but, but obviously, they didn't get it done. And, right. and obviously, that was an issue. You know, a, a friend of mine who's been on Capitol Hill for a long time had, a, had an excellent observation, I thought, about what happened with the Obamacare fight. And that is that the coalition for repealing Obamacare was never the same as the coalition for replacing Obamacare. And that was really the fundamental problem in trying to put the two together, that Rand Paul and Mike Lee, in essence, were never going to see eye to eye with Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. And I think that's actually a very keen observation because that's what ended up happening. Right. Let's, uh, let's have a little what if conversation here for a moment. And let's suppose what if not Donald Trump and Mike Pence are sitting in the White House in 2017. What if it's Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan? Take the 2012 ticket, but transport it to 2016, and they win the election, and they're serving in the White House in 2017, and perhaps Lon Hee Chen is sitting in the West Wing as well. You now have to sell Obamacare repeal to the United States Senate, and let's give it the same number, 52 Republican senators. Do you think a Romney White House could have gotten it passed? Because it seems to me, Lonnie, you have a fundamental problem here, trying to sell it to the likes of Lisa Murkowski, yeah. Susan Collins, John McCain, Rand Paul. Would would Romney have had better luck on, say, a brother-to-brother sales, a, a fellow Republican? Or, yeah. or, or is this just a problem with the numbers given this case? Yeah. I mean, you know, now in retrospect, I think we can say that, that there, we, the Republican coalition has a fundamental problem mm -hmm. around some of these issues. That having been said... I think the big key difference here is during the campaign last year, we never really knew what Donald Trump wanted to do on health care. He, he never really made it clear. I mean, he said some things about, you know, selling insurance across state lines and wanting to get rid of Obamacare because it was an abomination, but he never really gave us a plan. And this is why I do think that the way you run your campaign, the way that you tell Americans about what you want to do when you're elected president still matters an awful lot. And one of the things I do think that the Romney campaign in 2012 did, which the Trump campaign in 2016 did not, was to articulate to people clearly, this is what's going to happen if this person's elected president. Mm -hmm. And I tend to think that if Trump had been more specific during the campaign or had developed a health care plan with greater specificity, that some of this angst could have been avoided because the president would have said when he got elected, look, we've got my plan. Right. This is what we're doing. No questions. Republicans spent three or four weeks there at the beginning of 2017 debating, you know, are we going to do repeal alone or repeal and replace? And what does the replace look like? And all these debates that they were having would have been obviated if the president during the campaign had had approached it differently and had had a more specific plan. That's my theory. Right. Again, it's 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 hindsight is 2020. Sure. But I tend to think that that would have made a difference. The actress Rose McGowan. I don't know if you've been following the Harvey Weinstein oh sagas unveils, yeah. but Rose McGowan is one of many actresses who was on the receiving ends of his, shall we say, affections. Uh, she's been very vocal on Twitter, Lon He, about how horrible Harvey Weinstein is and how horrible Hollywood 
in general is about this issue. In particular, she singled out Ben Affleck for bad behavior. Twitter yesterday suspended her account, and you should see the stream of reactions from mm-hmm. celebrities, and each time they invoke the name Donald Trump. Yeah. It's, how can you do this to her when Donald Trump is allowed to run free? Lonnie, if Mitt Romney's in the White House and not Donald Trump, where does all this energy on the Democratic side go to? What what do they lash out against? Because Mitt Romney is fundamentally a nice guy. He's not yeah. Donald Trump. He's not that kind of target. You know, um, I saw a lot of manufactured anger during the 2012 election cycle mm-hmm. uh, about Governor Romney, about Paul Ryan, um, you know, folks on the left that tried to equate them to, you know, Satan and Lucifer. Right. Um, and, and, and now, you know, disingenuously, I hear a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, actually Mitt wasn't so bad of a guy. Well, but, but, you know, those are manufactured protests. Those are like the classic Iraqi protests where they right. just, you know, protest in front of the camera and then as soon as right. the camera turns off, they drop the signs. But with Trump, it's different. They see Trump on TV and I can understand their perspective. You see him and it just, you just go nuts when yeah. you see him on TV. My God, this is the president. How can this happen? But if Mitt Romney is not the kind of guy who's going to engender that kind of anger for four months, let alone four years. So, again, where would the Democrats, where would they be lashing right well, now? Well, the, the answer might be that they, they, they would be lashing. They wouldn't be lashing out with the level of ferocity that, that they are. They'd be lashing more and, against each other. Well, yeah. And, and, and that's the interesting part of this bill that, that people ignore is that the, the Democratic coalition is no – uh, cakewalk either. I mean, mm-hmm. they have a lot of problems and challenges of their own, right. which again, you know, have been covered up because they've been able to be united in their opposition to Trump, much like the Republican coalition had issues that was left over from the tail end of the Bush years through the 2012 campaign. All of that sort of got papered over by opposition to Obama because it was much easier to be against Obama than to be for something. The, the Democrats have a similar challenge they face now. And, and what all of the, you know, solidarity against Trump means is that they are delaying the inevitable, which is the articulation of what the progressive agenda looks like. And, and you know, unfortunately, I think for them, that hole is being filled by Bernie Sanders and his effort to drag the Democratic Party to a point that I don't think most Americans are comfortable with, whether it's on health care or on taxation or in foreign policy. I think the Democratic Party is at real danger of losing itself in um, in a race to the left, and it's gonna it's gonna cost them down the road. Bernie Sanders not a Democrat. Right. Well, he right, and and I mean that's the other part of it that should be frustrating to institutional Democrats right. is that their party is being co-opted by someone who doesn't even belong to the party. Do you think Donald Trump's a Republican? Uh, I think there are times when he acts like a Republican. I think there are times when he espouses policies that clearly are conservative policies. But I, I think what makes Donald Trump attractive to so many Americans is that he defies categorization. Um, you know, people in Michigan, let's say, you know, folks who have been laid off from manufacturing jobs and are frustrated with the pace of, of economic change and don't feel like government's listening to them, they don't actually want to vote for a Republican or a Democrat. They want to vote for someone who's for them. Mm-hmm. And Donald Trump has been able to create a measure of empathy with certain parts of the American electorate that I think transcend Republicanism or, or being a Democrat. I think that's why it's hard. I, I, it's hard to define Donald Trump as a traditional Republican or Republican of any stripe for that matter because he's really more about the relationship with people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what, what has made him um, politically have the, the amount of success he has to date. You worked for Marco Rubio in 2016, Lonnie. Do you think Rubio could have won in November? Or maybe perhaps it would have been a different election. Instead of the upper Midwest, he spends more time in the likes of, say, Virginia and Nevada. 
Yeah, it, it would have been a different electoral map. I think that's absolutely fair. Um, you know, Nevada uh, and, and Virginia are, are two examples. New Mexico might be a third. Mm-hmm. Um, you can imagine some other places he would have gone. I, I do absolutely think Marco Rubio would have been able to beat Hillary Clinton. Um, I think Hillary Clinton was a tremendously flawed candidate. And, and I think Marco would have, um, he would have appealed to a different uh, dynamic, right. but uh, there were so many contrasts about that that I just thought were great for Senator Rubio. The youth versus the age, uh, the energy and the exuberance versus the somewhat plodding nature of, of Clinton, the Clinton campaign, new ideas versus old ideas. But, you know, look, I, it's hard to play this back because the, the only election we know is the one we saw, and the one we saw was huge amounts of disaffection in the industrial Midwest coupled with a candidate who was ready and able to feed into that, Mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to say. Now, it's an interesting question whether Donald Trump would have beaten like a Joe Biden. That, that in my mind, is an interesting race. But, um, yeah, I I think Marco would have beaten her. Interesting. What if Donald Trump becomes this century's Polk? And like James K. Polk in 1848, he says, I came in here, I set out, I've accomplished what I set out to do. I'm out of here. And when you think about this for a second, it would be keeping in Trump because, first of all, it would be non-conventional. Secondly, the guy will be, what, 74 years old in 2020, so he just might decide, I've had enough of this. I'm tired of this town. I want to do other things. What then happens to the Republican Party, Lonnie? Because what I see is a situation not unlike 2015 where you're going to have 10 to 12 to 14 people all lining up, all claiming to be the voice of the Republican Party. And, and, and some percentage of them will claim to be the voice of Donald Trump. And, and does that automatically go to Mike Pence? I don't know that it does, by mm-hmm. the way, because, you know, I, I think the, the vice president has been a very faithful uh, vice president to Donald Trump, and I think right. that's what he has to do. But, but it's not clear to me that, that if, if you are a Trumpian at core, if you believe in the political philosophy of Donald Trump, that you would look at Mike Pence and think, that's my guy. Right. And, and so I do think that it gets very competitive. I think you're absolutely right. It's going to be interesting because on the left, on the Democratic side, there's tremendous uh, upheaval. And right. there's not clear who it would be. So that you'd have two open, contested primaries, in some ways a political wonk stream. I think, uh, look, I think one problem that both parties have learned the hard way in the past 50 years or so is it's hard to steal somebody else's act. Democrats spent the better part of, what, 40 years in the woods trying to find the next John Kennedy. And finally, Bill Clinton came along and sort of claimed John Kennedy through a handshake, but was, well, it was JFK in some aspects, which you won't get into on a family podcast, but um, but he really wasn't JFK, so the Democrats had to make peace with that. Republicans have been looking for Ronald Reagan ever since. Yeah. They found out the hard yeah. way that Ronald Reagan's kind of an original. But you look at the 2016 field, Lon He, who all from 2016 would still be fresh in 2020? Well, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure there's a ton of overlap. Um, on the Demo- it was a, a weak field on the Democratic side, which is why okay. Hillary Clinton emerged. Well, I'll, I'll be polite here. I think I think your friend from Florida, I think Marco yeah. Rubio, could certainly jump in. Yeah. Well, you know, I think he. Um, first of all, I think since be, since winning re-election, he's been totally focused on Florida. Right. And and that's what he needs to do. And and he's been very successful at it. And he is uh, campaigning for Jeff Flake. He's raising money for Jeff yeah. Flake. Yeah. He and and he's been. He, I think he will probably continue to raise money for for people he's worked with and alongside in the Senate. Is there a message in choosing Flake? Because Jeff Flake is obviously very much on the wrong side of Donald Trump. Well, I think I think the message is that that if there is a message, it's that Marco Rubio's worked with Jeff Flake and he and he likes him and believes mm-hmm. that that he's a good senator. Right. Uh, I I don't read into it any more than that. But I think that. Um, if you look at that field from 2016, you know the number of people in it. I think 
would love to make another go at it. I'm, I'm, it seems to me that John Kasich is interested in making another go at it. I'm sure Ted Cruz would love to do it. Rand Paul is always going to be interested in certain respect. Um, the governors, you know, Chris Christie. Um, I'm not sure if there's opportunity there, given some of the challenges he's faced in the last couple months. But, you know, it, it was a good field in 16. In Jeb Bush, I mean, it was a great field in 16. Mm -hmm. So could any number of those people pop up again? Sure. Now, there are also fresh faces that might decide they want to jump in. You, right. you talked about Ben Sass. I'm sure that, that you know, he may be thinking, you know, is there something else beyond the U.S. Senate? Um, you know, my old friend Tom Cotton has been remarkably skillful in the way he's handled a number of these issues. So, you know, look, I think there's a lot of different ways that this could go. But the 16 field was talented. And if Donald Trump decides he doesn't want to run for a second term, it's open season. Definitely. So your sense, I know you can't predict the future. We don't know where the economy is going to be come 2019. We don't know what's going to happen in foreign policy, what social events could overtake the country. But what do you think the Republican voter is going to be looking for post-Donald Trump? You know, I think that Donald Trump has changed the, the paradigm of the politician. Mm -hmm. And the carefully scripted, carefully controlled politician, um, I, I don't see that person being effective immediately in the aftermath of Donald Trump. Now, it could right. be that we swing in the opposite direction and we look for someone who's totally programmed. I, I just think that people, what people find refreshing about Donald Trump is like, whatever he's thinking, you know he's going to say it, right. and for better or for worse. And how hard is it going to be to go from that back to a more traditional view of, of a politician? But I, but I do think that it wouldn't surprise me if voters wanted somebody who had a little bit more government experience, maybe somebody who can deal with Congress uh, in a way that might be more effective, particularly if, if they, let's say they go through the next couple of months and they don't get tax reform done and they don't end up getting anything done. I think there will be deep frustration with the complete outsider narrative as well. Right. Let's talk about your experience for a minute. So you were born in North Carolina. Yep. And as a very young boy, moved to Roland Heights, California. Southern California. What yeah. is special about Roland Heights? You know, it's one of these uh, bedroom community, you know, sort of bedroom community suburbs that uh, grew up in the eastern part of LA County. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, when I when we first moved there, uh, there was a little bit of diversity, but it, it wasn't. Uh, it ended up being a, a sort of majority minority place by the time I left high school, where at least half of Roland Heights was Asian American. Right. Um, you know, easily another quarter to third was Hispanic. Right. And, um, and nowadays, I think those trends have accelerated and continued. But, you know, it, it's an interesting place because it was, you know, solidly middle, upper middle income, uh, very strong work ethic amongst a lot of the kids that I went to high school with, mm -hmm. um, and, and was really a place where uh, people felt that there was a lot of opportunity. You know, people moved there. Immigrants like my parents moved there because they, they saw it as a place of opportunity where they could still feel comfortable, um, you know, that they had access to cultural things that, that they wanted to do. You know, good Chinese food, for example, you know, or, uh, or, or Chinese supermarkets or, right. or whatever the case might be. And, and so um, it, it was an interesting place to grow up because my experience actually – ended up being maybe a little bit more homogeneous in the sense that I was surrounded by a lot of Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to college, when I moved back east for college, you know, it was a very different environment. I mean, still still a diverse environment, but but diverse in a very different way. So if I did the math correctly, Lanhi, uh, the first election in which you could have participated as a voter, not marching in the streets or handing up ballots, but as a voter, would have been 1996. Yeah. Interesting year for Republicans. The nominee that year is one Bob Dole. Mm -hmm. And the primary field, who all challenged him? Pat Buchanan, Steve Forbes, uh, Lamar Alexander, Phil Graham. 
I'm assuming you're running Alan Keyes or a Bob Dornan, man. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'd forgotten that they both run. I, I remember Alan Keyes. I don't remember Bob Dornan. Right. Um, I, I, I really liked Bob Dole. You know, I remember being really enthused about his candidacy. I, I, I may have been one of the few in my age category who was, but I was a page at the 1996 Republican National Convention in San, in San Diego. Diego. Yes. And I, I, I remember being just captivated by politics. Um, and, I, and I've always been interested in it, but, but, you know, one of my first real interactions with national politics, and it was, it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember thinking, you know, Bob Dole is a decent and honorable man. Right. Um, I, I didn't, I wasn't well steeped in matters of policy then, but I, you know, sounded like what he was for was stuff that I was for too. And so um, I, I still look back very fondly upon the Dole candidacy, even though he didn't do particularly well against President Clinton, but, you know. It was tough, right? Running against an incumbent president who's 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 triangulated well. I mean, that's a tough tough race to win. He had a bad time in California. This is where he famously fell off the stage. I remember event, that. So not yeah. pleasant. But what what made you identify with the Republican Party back when you're 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old? So you know, the first images of American politics from my youth were of Ronald Reagan and George H. W. Bush, mm-hmm. and and people who talked about the value of freedom and the importance of opportunity. And, and the ability for every American to work hard and to do well. And, and those were things that resonated with me as, as the kid of immigrants, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that my parents came to the U.S. with, with their educations and with, with their upbringings, but with not much more than that. Are your parents Republicans? Um, my parents are, I, I would say that they're Republicans only because they're, they're, they're just culturally conservative mm-hmm. and they're dispositionally conservative as immigrants. Right. Um, and so, but, but they weren't particularly political either. I um, developed a political interest on my own. And, and in fact, you know, not unlike many, many immigrants from their generation, they weren't too excited about my initial interest in politics because from, from their home countries, they're from Taiwan, you know, others uh, we knew were from Korea or from, from China, they sort of saw politics as slightly dangerous or edgy in their home countries. And so it wasn't like, you know, they were sort of, oh, this is fantastic. Our kid wants to get into politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think over time they realized it was a real passion for me. Right. And um, what I observed about the party of Reagan and the party of Bush was it was a welcoming place mm-hmm. and a place that really stood for those fundamental values of freedom and opportunity and liberty that, um, that are very attractive, I think, to many Americans. I think many Americans want to believe that ours is a country where you can work hard, play by the rules, and get ahead. What? What percentage of the Asian vote did Donald Trump get in 2016? Uh, I, I, I don't think it was very high. Uh, no. I think it was probably roughly similar to what to what Mitt Romney got, um, and and it wasn't. Um, you know, it hasn't been particularly good. The um, the Asian vote has actually flipped completely back right. in the era of um, uh, of Bob Dole, etc. Uh, you know, Asians were routinely probably. 65 to 70 percent supportive of Republicans, and right. that's that's flipped, if not um, accelerated. I think Barack Obama won 80 percent of Asian Americans, and um, and I think Hillary Clinton probably did roughly the same. So it, it, it's been a, a difficult transition for the Asian American community. I think that that there are a lot of things explain that, right? Um, but but it's been a transition nonetheless. You could actually, as a Republican candidate, Lonnie, come to California and campaign in Asian communities. A friend of mine who worked in San Francisco uh, actually did an event for Elizabeth Dole. Yeah. Uh, during the general election, took her to Chinatown. It's a very funny story. They timed it so that this would be a live hit on Inside Politics, which back in the day ran at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Yep. So they set up an Elizabeth Dole rally in Chinatown, and all hell broke loose. Just They oh, just man. they just kind of mobbed her and just kind of sort of ran with her down the street. It's almost like the running of the bulls in Pamplona. <laughs> <laughs> 
the funny part of it, Lon, is that my friend, who is not not Chinese, so she stood out. She's a very tall, majestic blonde woman, so she uh-huh. was just just stuck out like a sore thumb. Just there's thousands of Chinese women, mostly, who just you know coming down the street yelling in their native language. And Elizabeth Dole kind of moving along, harried. My friend comes along, and and right as she goes by the CNN live camera, she lets out a four-letter word <laughs> in fear. But <laughs> the point is, you could actually come to California yeah. and appeal to Asians. But what happened? Why, why, why did the Republicans disconnect with Asian voters? Yeah, I think part of it is um, the, the first thing is I think the Asian population has gotten younger overall. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as uh, first-generation immigrants have come here and started families, and you know, it is the case that people who are younger um, have have tended to um, to adopt more progressive views. So, right. so that that's part of it is a, is a demographic challenge. But, but I don't think you can let the Republican Party off the hook here. I think the Republican Party for many years neglected the Asian American vote. I think they've done better in very recent years. They've actually had an operation they've put together, um, you know, l- led by some people who are working in, in the Trump White House now and, and others who um, have been in California for a while. Sean Steele, the longtime uh, national committeeman here in California, has, has always been committed to expanding uh, GOP support amongst Asians. But th- the point is this. Republicans for a long time neglected the Asian American vote. They weren't in the community. They weren't doing a good job of spreading the Republican message. They were taking it for granted. And, and, and that caused atrophy over time. I really believe that, that the party mechanism deserted the Asian American population. And as a result, Asian Americans skewed uh, in the other direction. And that's to, to also suggest that I think that they can come back, that Asian Americans can once again um, be supportive of Republicans. If Republicans are talking about issues like economic opportunity, like freedom, like a good educational system, that a lot of Asian Americans still care deeply about. That's what's curious about this disconnect because you think of the Asian American family, they're aspirational. They're economically aspirational. They want their children to receive good educations. They're very appreciative of being in the country. They're very patriotic. You would think there's a natural match with Republicans. In other words, it's a, it's a glass half full existence, I think. Yeah. And I mean, look, there, there's a diversity within the Asian American community to be sure. And, and, right. and, and you know, Asian Americans of Vietnamese heritage are different from Asian Americans of of Indian heritage or different from Asian Americans of Chinese heritage. But these values, I mean, this is the frustrating part of it, the the values of of individual responsibility, of the value of freedom, the ability to do what uh, what you came to do to achieve dreams in the United States. These are values, yes, they're they're values that are important to the Asian American community. They're also important to the Hispanic community as well. So Republicans should have an appeal in the Hispanic community. Now there, I think the immigration issue has been a big challenge for Republicans. Right. And, and in the same way, the, the other point I'll add on why Asians have drifted away from the Republican Party is I do think the Republican, some Republican positioning on immigration has been problematic in the Asian community as well. How so? Um, I, I think there's a perception, and a lot of this is unfair, that Republicans are anti-immigrant. And mm-hmm. I think Asian Americans have felt some of that affect um, and, and again, a lot of it, I think, is manufactured, right. but some of it is, is, you know, based on policy stances, based on, on things you're hearing, um, which is why I, you know, look, I think Republicans as the, as the party of opportunity need to be very careful in their rhetoric around immigration. They need to be very mm-hmm. careful in the policies they propose. Right. You know, one perfect example is, you know, the president's proposed a shift to a more merit-based immigration system. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's also proposing drastic limitations on the number of immigrants who can come to the U.S. And I think that sends a signal that immigrants aren't welcome. And so I think we have to be very careful when we balance these messages to do it in a way that that still respects the traditional Republican support 
for immigrants who can come here, contribute, and, and help our American economy grow and the American story flourish. One more topic I'd like your thoughts on, and that's affirmative action. If you go back to 1996, that magical year when Lottie Chen first votes, <laughs> there is a proposition in California, Prop 209, which has to do with quotas in public universities. And that was first driven by Asian families in the San Francisco Bay Area who were outraged that their children could get into Berkeley because of quotas. Mm -hmm. So if you're the Republicans, Lonnie, and this gets to immigration, I think, too, you have these issues which sort of ping-pong differently in minority communities. Asian Americans, for example, might be outraged by affirmative action because they suffer the brunt of the UC system. African Americans, on their hand, they're supportive of it. Yeah. Illegal immigration, perhaps you could say to Asian Americans, it reinforces a right way and a wrong way. Hispanics, though, again, feel the brunt. So Republican blending on these messages, how do you do it? Yeah, affirmative action is a, is a particularly interesting issue, I think, because it does create um, some division within the traditional democratic coalition. You're right, the, mm -hmm. um, you know, particularly the, 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 the newer additions to that coalition. Right. Um, and, and in the Asian American community, affirmative action is a very divisive issue. I think you will find a decent number, if not a, a, a majority of, of Asian Americans who express discomfort about affirmative action. And, you know, Republicans haven't really used that in, in a political way. And, and I'm not necessarily arguing that they use it in a purely political way, but there's a basic policy point here, which is, you know, do we believe that our systems of admission, particularly to public colleges and universities, ought to be based predominantly on merit or predominantly on other factors? And I think most Asian Americans would say it should be a merit-based approach, mm -hmm. whereas the system in place now might equally weight the two or it might even give slight advantage uh, to an effort to create a diverse community. And I think those kinds of questions are questions that once we start to get into them, once we start to debate them a little bit, the traditional conservative position, the Republican position of a, of a society built on, on our merit is one that will be appealing to many Asian Americans. The question is, how do you deploy that? How do you have that discussion? And we're going to have to see going forward, but I don't think Republicans should shy away from it. I think it's an issue where there is potential to, um, to gain. Right. So you do 60-second radio commentaries on Salem Radio. We yeah. were talking about this before the broadcast. Yeah. And there's always a challenge of stuffing a lot of things into a duffel bag, trying to get the word out in 60 seconds. But in 60 seconds, Lon, he talked to that young man, that young woman who was born in 2002 and will turn 18 in 2020, and this will be their first presidential election to vote in. Or the young kid who was born in 2000 in 2018 is the first election to vote in. Make the case in 60 seconds as to why the Republican Party speaks I, to you. I, I think that you have to ask, what kind of America do you want to live in? And is it an America where there is plentiful opportunity, where you're valued based on, um, based on your skills, based on your training, based on the education, the values you've been raised with? You know, or is it in America where um, government and the role that government plays crowds out all of the things that make you who you are, the individual who you are? And those two visions may seem um, somewhat drastic, but that's really the fundamental choice going forward between a conservative worldview and a worldview that I think a lot of progressives have, which is how strongly is the federal government playing a role in your life? How much are you given the ability to innovate and seek opportunity and to use the skills and talents you've been given? And how much responsibility do you assume for your own success? And I think for people who have that vision of America as a place where you can achieve anything, uh, where you can continue to work hard and play by the rules and do well, um, that vision is one that's very consistent with mm -hmm. what I think a lot of conservatives want to achieve. Not all, but a lot. And, and to the extent that that vision's attractive, um, I think those folks ought to strongly consider supporting uh, the Republican Party and Republican candidates. Okay, final questions. I'll let you get out of here. 
the rest of 2017, let's talk about how it will play out on Capitol Hill. You mentioned we have the tax reform issue hanging over them. There's the budget. There's nominations. The uh, Iran situation, the president's right, going to dump yeah. that on them today. A lot of stuff they have to go after in a short period of time. Yeah, very busy agenda. I do think tax reform will be the priority. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have made that clear. And then, and then beyond that, I think uh, they will have to deal with the decertification. If, if the president decertifies the uh, JCPOA, the Iran deal, uh, they are going to have to come back to that. They are going to have to deal with the budget. They're going to have to fund the government. So right. um, it's a very crowded agenda. Uh, and I, I'll be surprised if they get more than one of those things done. Okay. 2018, do they make another run at Obamacare? I think they do. I think Why? they do. Oh, I think politically, you know, as I said earlier, the, 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 the energy from the base around Obamacare repeal and replace remains. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that they feel like they, that there's something that can get done there. And, and again, it might be more limited than what they tried this year. But I, I find it inconceivable that they would get to next November's election and not have made another run at, at repealing and replacing at least parts of the ACA. So you think it's possible they can do something that could get 50 votes in the Senate? Yeah, I think it would have to be much more limited in scope, and it might have to include, um, you know, th- there's going to be have some pills that both sides are going to have to swallow that are going to be a little bitter. Right. Um, but, I do, but I do think they can, they can get to something, yeah. Okay, and what else in 2018? If you're, if you're filling out the dance card for the Republicans, if you do something on Obamacare, tax reform, what else do they have to do? Well, I, I think if they get those two things done, they can they can you know take a rest. But um, you know, infrastructure remains an issue that that I think we wonder how they're going to deal with that if they're going to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Immigration's floating around. The president's introduced an immigration plan. He had apparently achieved some kind of agreement on DACA, which now I guess he you know he's backing out. I'm not sure how that works, but immigration will be an issue on the agenda as well. And 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 so you take immigration infrastructure. Tax, health, the funding of the government, debt ceiling. I mean, that's a very productive Congress. So I, like I said, if they get tax reform done, I think people will be shouting from the rooftops because they just got to get something done. Final question. Are you bullish or bearish these days? Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still generally bullish. I think that um, notwithstanding the controversy and the division around President Trump, there's a lot in our political system to admire. Um, you know, the fact you know, Steve Scalise came back from that awful shooting uh, to Congress, I guess it was last week, yeah. and the reception, the warmth, the ability of political opponents to come together and unite around things, you know, how we've responded to the tragedies in Las Vegas and the natural disasters here in California and in Puerto Rico and elsewhere. Yes, there's division. Yes, there are challenges. But fundamentally, um, there are things about America and Americans that draw us together that I still believe are stronger than the things that, that threaten to divide us. And I have hope that those are things that are going to sustain us in the long run. Lady Chen, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Lonnie Chen and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox every workday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hooverinst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Lonnie Chen is also on Twitter, and his Twitter handle is, not surprisingly, at Lonnie Chen. That is spelled at L-A-N-H-E-E-C-H-E-N. Anything else you'd like to plug? No, that, you, you've, you've been my publicist for the, for the month. Thank you. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. 
For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.